Hiya, welcome to Zero Ambitions, a podcast about sustainability, the built environment and zero carbon goals. We're here again, part two with Bill Bordas and Adrian Lehman. I'll keep it brief because I said it all last time. If you're not listening to the previous episode, do so. But don't, I mean, it's up to you. Everything will probably make a bit more sense if you do. But in this episode, rather than just looking at the past and understanding how we got here, we're looking into the future. Just about all of the books or papers that are referenced will be in the show notes. I've tried to capture everything. There might be one or two missing. But otherwise, check their website, usablebuildings.co.uk. It's brilliant. Finally, please review, share, all the usual things. ACAN, AECB, Passive House Plus, subscribe, advertise if you can, if it's relevant. Definitely check it out, though. All right, um, there's a little bit of overlap with the last episode, just so you can get the context. I'll let it roll. Cheers. Right, so thinking about, I mean, the system's a mess. It doesn't work in Ireland, France, or the UK. But people, all right, so I'm thinking of, Jeff and I were involved in a private conversation in the week where someone who's undergoing a massive retrofit program uh amongst a whole bunch of social housing assets they're trying to work out how to assess the work at all they're trying to assess the quality of the work so like the the prospective rating asset rated and they're trying to work out how to assess the operational performance and so this is like uh small units and tower blocks I'm just curious what you guys, like you, you have so much experience in this field. How should folk approach that, knowing the ones who are willing to check their homework? How should they be approaching doing a good job? Because everyone's, because of the lack of support from institutions, as we've discussed, who don't like best practice in this regard, everyone has to make it up as they go along. But there's, there are a few benchmarks. The benchmarks aren't vetted. I mean, someone in that situation, how should they how should they begin to approach what they're doing? Well, the best place to begin is to understand where you are when you set out. Yeah. So what can be really helpful if you've got a big program is, you know, one, to see what's going on in terms of energy use and in, indoor environments in a sample of dwellings, and then give it a try for doing the upgrades. So often I find people, you know, dash into big programs, and then they propagate systematic errors. And, you know, as I often say, you know, the best thing is to make haste slowly, you know, essentially <laughs> want to spend a long time understanding what you need to do because then you can scale it up very rapidly because you get fewer nasty surprises. I mean, it's interesting, as a paper by Cambridge, it, um, you know, it's not the Times thing, it's rather similar, but they um, were looking at a cohort of buildings before and after upgrades. But essentially, they were only able to spot them by sort of changes in the EPCs. But they looked at the real energy use. And what they found is that, you know, 
actually after two or three years, the energy use was little or no different than it was before the upgrade. Now, when you take that apart, you suddenly find that one, they've got a double cohort, essentially, so that essentially part of the buildings they spotted were social housing. And what probably happened there is that the occupiers were living in a substandard environment. And after a little while living in their more economic environment, they found they could afford to put a bit more heat into it. Yeah. So yeah. essentially, there was take back in terms of quality, and that may or not not have been necessary. But you know that would explain it. So there wasn't an energy saving, but there was an environmental quality and health improvement, perhaps. The other trigger they got is they said, "Oh well, if they put on a conservatory, they must have done something to the building." Well, Taj and research students at UCL 20 years ago found that putting on a conservatory was supposed to save you energy and actually doubled it because, you know, most dwellings in Britain are fairly mean on space standards. So if you have a conservatory, you don't just use it as a sun space. Um, and, you know, you start, you start heating it and leaving the door open. And, and they're freezing. Yeah, they're, they're boiling in the summer and freezing in the winter anyway, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. But again, this is the issue that the objective function is often wrong, I think. You know, if you're making alterations to save energy and carbon, and that's the objective function, then you're much more likely to get the result than if you just make changes and hope to save energy and carbon. Mm. But essentially, as I said before, you know, if you want to direct, if you want to direct it to making real savings, then you better understand where what your starting point is. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned the, the the quality of life and health aspect, which is usually unaccounted for in the the bold facts of an EPC. It you know it just doesn't how people live just doesn't feature. No, well, it's got stand, they've got standardized assumptions about how people live, which are, I think, wildly unrealistic, frankly. Mm. Uh, for, 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 not well, they, there will be some scenarios in which they may be realistic, but uh, but not many. Sorry, I, I, I hadn't said anything at all um, during this conversation because I wanted Bill to to tell the story in all its detail. And the, mm. the question that everything begs for me is what kind of disruption is required to actually move and change the system because we've we've just lived through you know we're living through the climate emergency and that's not changing the system you know we've still got the, the dreaded word net everywhere which is allowing things to revert regress to the mean back yeah. to normal a fabulous accounting well, uh or we've got covid which i thought may have may have shifted things enough to for radical change to come in and it hasn't and if you i've been reviewing things for journals recently and i've been absolutely appalled by the way in which the we've moved away from an, an empirical problem based approach to buildings to a modeling world, a world completely dominated by the metaverse and the uh, the impending uh, 
AI revolution, whenever that's going to come. And and to me, the problems that you're talking about are professional problems. They are academic problems. And there was an incident where Bill and I were giving a talk at a conference about 15 years ago now. And we'd, we'd done our normal, the, the kind of thing Bill has been talking about today. And, and we were saying that sort of thing 15 years ago, when suddenly a professor in the audience got up and it was a bit like kind of Basil Fawlty. He got up and he, shout, he, he shouted quite angrily at us, empiricists. And, Bill, and, and a little bit more to go with it. And Bill and I were really shocked by this. I mean, we were taken aback because we were simply, you know, reporting in as honest a detail as we could how people behaved, how they used buildings, and what the problems were. Now, we, we uh, somebody else jumped up and defended us, but we were so shocked we could hardly defend ourselves at the time. Well, how but dare now, you have the audacity to ground what you're talking about in reality? <laughs> Quite. Now, this is exactly what is happening. You know, the whole metaverse is taking us away from a direct relationship either with reality or nature. You know, the, the whole... Uh, thing about the 15-minute city to try and get back people getting back into parks and actually looking at the sky and getting kids out playing, that sort of thing. And I've been involved recently with National Park Movement, with meeting people who I've never met in my professional life before, who are just ordinary people living ordinary lives, who come to me and say, we want to do something. What do we do? And the answer is a tyranny of small decisions, basically. Basically, we change behavior at, uh, at the normal level of people's everyday lives. And so the answer to your question, you know, how, do you, how do you study value, is exactly what we put in the end of our questionnaire, our occupant questionnaire for domestic buildings, which was at the end, we stuck a, 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 a set of questions, which were something like, how has this, how has this changed your, how has this, your building, your new building or, or the, your refurbished building changed your life? Mm. Are you actually healthier? Are you happier? Um, and, uh, you know, have, have you changed your job? Is And we actually asked them, you know, have your energy bills gone up or down? You know, just straightforward questions, no need to develop models or anything like that. And one of the things we find in the domestic buildings is that almost invariably, a new building or a refurbished building, which is energy efficient, is going to make things better. And you don't need any set of performance standards. You just need to listen to what people say. And exactly the same way. Now, nature recovery is a big thing now. And there's an awful lot of money being chucked at rewilding and nature recovery. And the whole problem then it becomes who actually assesses whether it's got better or not. And the answer, for the most part, is 
companies that are set up to build methodologies, often with remote sensing, you know, to count the number of trees and to to, to, to the extent to which Western Australia is being destroyed by carbon offsetting schemes, you know, that sort of thing. Now, actually, probably a waste of time. Because what really needs to to uh, happen is you just simply ask people at the local level, what have you observed? What are you doing? Is it getting better? And it's a bottom-up approach to Ooh. energy as well as to climate change or nature recovery. I am now convinced that that is the way forward. And actually, the there's a kind of misplaced concreteness about all the professional and academic activity in this area. And what really worries me is the lack of good, clear, plain English. This is very basic in, in academic papers. The inability of uh, designers to actually read anything academic now because it's so appallingly complex or laden with references which are um, often of no use to them whatsoever. Now, you know, it's just... You forgot, a, it you is, forgot the legalese of building regulations oh, too, Adrian. <laughs> oh, sorry, I didn't. I, was, you, I talked over myself then. Oh, no, that was um, me. You, 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 there's also, you can add the, the legalese of building regulations into the into that as well, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes, we, and uh, the confusion... I mean, I'm reading a book at the moment by um, a guy called Bent Flyberg, and, and Bill knows how to pronounce his name and to spell his yeah. name, and it's all... Pardon, say again, Bill. Live beer. Here it is. That, that's the guy. Yeah. Now that oh yes, that's the same book. Yeah. And it's now ghost. It's ghost written. And unfortunately, there's a touch of the Peters and Waterman about it. Namely, it, you know, it's it's got one good idea which is repeated a thousand times before you you give up um, you know, completely pummeled by it. But um he's he's got a lot of points which relate to what we're saying and what we're saying is you're confusing means and ends you know if if you really want to boil things down means and ends become completely confused in the construction world and in the world of legislation and so on and that book is saying something like that because it's all about how big projects go wrong and how little mm. projects go wrong and often it's because people do not understand what trying what kind of need the project is trying to meet. And the reason is because they don't focus on needs. And another reason is you can't both. Um, I've been trying to focus on needs for the last 40 or 50 years, and it's been really difficult to build a business out of that. And I know that Dan is doing exactly the same thing, trying to building a business out of selling user experience and, and user knowledge to, to, to a corporate world. It is very difficult because people think they know the answers and they don't uh, because behavior actually isn't studied and human need is not studied properly or, or empirically. So, and I, I, sorry, I'm taking you way away no, from energy certificates. Because I wanted actually to take you back into the 1970s with limits to growth and what was going on in the UK at the time, because there was a whole movement in the in the 1970s of energy, which is uh, reflected in the in uh, a book which was published. 
by the RIBA called Buildings the Key to Energy Conservation by George Kasabov, edited by George Kasabov. And that had 50 case studies of projects that were on the ground or mooted in the 1970s, which were all about, guess what, energy conservation. There was a big movement there. And that... This is one of those books that's in the show notes. It was referenced in the last episode. It's here again. Um, what It had some effect, but it, it completely disappeared over the 80s and 90s until Passive House came along and kind of gave gave this whole thing a kiss of life in a different context. And um, remember that all the long-life, loose-fit, low-energy stuff came from the, nine, the early 1970s. And there was um, a significant uh, union of practice and academia at the time. And the people doing this were people like Bob McLeod, who was an expert on Charles Rennie McIntosh, a historian. There was, there was Pat O'Sullivan, who was an energy man. There was uh, the, me and Bill Hillier were, were, were desperately trying to um, open up the study of morphology and space and so on at that time. And um, there were the design methods people, and there were people like Alex Pike doing his autarkic house and autonomous house, and the whole autonomous movement was there and really quite significant. But that, and within the context of limits to growth, which of course is all about the the supposed oil crisis um where oil was going to disappear because it was being used so much when that of course didn't happen and that was one of the triggers that didn't happen that actually made things worse because it didn't really it it, it took away focus from the the kind of radicalism that was and the contrarianism that yeah. was going into this I just I'm think not, the fact I'm, that I'm, energy was I'm, so cheap throughout the 80s and 90s was a killer, you know? Yeah. Um, obviously, the, I, the two oil crises were the, the, the big motivator, one of the main motivators of the 70s for a lot of activity, um, and I suppose the nascent environmental movement too, you know? Um, but but uh, to, me, to me, people like Ivan Illich and E.F. Schumacher were uh, important, and we don't really have their you know the, the same now and i just i wanted to tell this story it's just not it's not long but the riba conference in 1974 was in hull and alex gordon i think it was and andrew derbyshire who was also involved with very much with supporting the kind of thing that bill and i have done over the years were all involved and i and victoria thornton were gophers at the conference young gophers looking after people and we were driving a transit van um, up to Hull with all the lighting gear in it and all the architectural models, and one of which was the Autarkic House by um, Alex Pike. And this was pre-Humber Bridge. And there was a ferry that went over from Barton-on-Humber to Hull, and the tide was out. And we crept down a, down a, a, a steep... Uh, uh, kind of causeway onto the onto the boat onto the ship, and as we did, there was a ominous crash from the back, and the lighting gear fell on top of all the models, and everything got smashed in the back of the van. Oh my god! And that was the start. The next day, we were we were paged 
to take somebody in the van to the conference, one of the speakers, uh, because uh, uh, they, they, the taxi hadn't turned up and it was an emergency. So Victoria and I got into the van and the guy got in. And he in transit, there are only two seats in the front, so he had to sit on the gear. And I was kind of fiddling with the gear and also fiddling with him quite a lot, a lot as we drove to the conference. And he got in there and it, somebody said, do you know who that is? And I, I didn't. I thought it was kind of, it was a bit like Dr. Strabiv, oh, I can't say it, a, a Spike Milligan character anyway. And... We got out, and it was E.F. Schumacher, author of Smallest Beautiful, keynote speaker at the conference. And today, just by coincidence, I found some re-imaged film of E.F. E. F. Schumacher, and I put it onto the Usable Buildings website, because that kind of the clarity and the passion and the 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 extraordinary insights of people like him just don't seem to be around at the moment. There's Mombio, of course, but you never yeah. know 50% of Mombio's great, but you didn't know which 50%. Uh, yeah. You could definitely guarantee, you know, it's people like that. And the crucial thing at the moment is what kind of disruption do we need to change the system. And to me now, the answer is it's bottom up, it's it's not professional, it's not academic, it is it is basically meeting need at uh, at the normal level of everybody's lives. And that's where we should be focusing the attention. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, what you're saying there puts me in mind of uh, Robin McAlpine, who we spoke with last year from Commonweal, where uh, he said there are... To instigate big change, you need three kinds of people. You need long marchers, people who are prepared to work within institutions and stick it out. You need stone throwers, people who are prepared to cause disruption and upset people. And you need folk who are prepared to build the alternative, which provides a model for the long marchers and uh well, I mean, a, a target and ammunition for the stone throwers because they exist on all sides. I mean, what also is clear, I mean, from the beginning of this conversation through to now is that uh, notions of purpose are lacking when it comes to the implementation of any of these uh, schemes that we've discussed. There is always a purpose at the start but it is distorted and twisted and, I mean, disrupted in a, a negative sense. Yeah. So, like, EPCs have been misused in the same manner as GDP is misused. You know, the man who invented GDP said it's a, a metric that's not fit for purpose in its current use. EPCs are, are made to, certainly in the domestic sector, feel tailor-made to ameliorate the problems estate agents might have and the market itself, rather than any energy issues. And in terms of uh, what do we do, it sounds like, from what you're saying, people need to build their own approach, that transparency 
in the process will ensure that performance improves if the purpose is such but use and quality of like the use of an asset and the quality of life of its user must be incorporated into any appreciation like have i got the gist of it right well yes jump in now um I mean, Adrian talked about ends and means. And the trouble is, you know, the end is more sustainable buildings with lower carbon footprints and happier and healthy uh, people inside them. And the means was the EPC, which turned into the end. So essentially, as I said in that blog, the EPCs have turned into a ritual. Now, unfortunately, I mean, this was a real shock to me in the noughties in particular, because the work that the Energy Efficiency Best Practice Program and Sibsi and me and others had done in the 90s did produce an approach to energy in buildings that counted everything. And then along came the Energy Performance of Buildings Directive. And all it has with this subset. And then you had designers talking about regulated loads, mm. ignoring everything else. I yeah. mean, sometimes they might not have ignored it. They might have needed it in their computer models to tell them what internal gains they had to cope with or whatever. But essentially, it wasn't reported. So you lost transparency between expectations and outcomes. And then what happened on the domestic side? Because the government wanted market competition, they developed this national calculation method, which is here's a reference building, here's your building. Um, The regulation is based on how much lower your building is than the reference building. Yeah. Um, Well, that's okay. But what they thought was that the TASs and EDSLs, et cetera, of this world, energy pluses, would develop modules for their software that did that counting everything. But instead, they produced a subroutine that just calculated an EPC. <laughs> so essentially, the whole drivers got totally subverted in that rather than having real good outcomes, they just had um, snazzy-looking, meaningless rituals. Yeah, that sounds very familiar. It's really, but I mean, I suppose one shouldn't have been surprised in a way, but it was really sad, the dominance of this EPBD subset. I mean, Denmark had a good system for non-domestic buildings, which was based on actually a new synergy. The only problem is they did it every year and they should have done it every three years because essentially the cost of doing it was significant in relation to the cost of implementing the recommendation. When EPD came along, they threw it away and just did EPCs. So they actually went backwards in Denmark Mm. because they were pushing people towards the ritual rather than the reality-based process. I mean, can't you... The uh, process can motivate everybody, not just the designers and builders, but the clients and managers and investors and service providers and you name it. 
don't you want to create a situation though, or do you, do you see value in a situation where um, you you improve the ritual? You uh, you because uh, we've seen it in Ireland with you know I've seen it with with our version of SAP. It, it is getting better. You know, too slowly perhaps, but the SEAI, to their credit, have been improving it. And there's another recast of the directive happening at the moment. Um, and they're they're looking at recalibrating the whole energy rating scale. Um, and uh, they're looking at... You're describing making the ritual more elaborate, though, Jeff. You're not, not describing... You're not... You're describing more means, no outcome. Like, no. what what Bill and Adrian have told us many times is their work has always been stymied by market-based responses and solutions. Now, mm. until there is a market-based response to this elaborate ritual, which hitherto there hasn't been, like, it is just a performative dance that we all do, which results in that funny coloured chart and an arrow pointing to a letter. Until we get beyond that, and that's where I keep bollocking on about until it affects the value of an asset, we're just fulfilling a requirement for a, a person. This is like Brazil, not 1984. Yeah, yeah. There, there, there is a risk of that happening with, um, you know, that there's already signs um, of, as I think I mentioned on the podcast last week, of big developers in Ireland saying, yeah, I, you know, you've got... I am um, being told by the, the finance people, I know you've got a, a NZ, a nearly zero energy building certificate, but what, but how's it really performing? You know, so, so that is, that's kind of focusing the minds. But all I was just saying is that, that they have to get this right. I think that, I think there's a recognition that they have to get it right. Um, no, I mean, there's no such, I mean, they don't, like if they had to get it right, they'd have got it right. Yeah, like I the only know. thing that I can see making any difference now is that mix of, uh, jingoism and patriotism that we discussed with Kieran Cuff last week where so this recast that's coming out of uh, the EU he's building a case for demand reduction in terms of energy use so the energy performance of buildings on war with Putin as an icon you know an icon we must resist and he's ditched any talk of climate now I'm oversimplifying what he said. Well, well, that was just him selling it politically to the to the far right in the in the European Parliament. You know? Well, not just the far right, because a lot of the far right yeah, are behind the a man like well, Putin. Yeah. Like yeah. it is, he is finding a way to build a case without yeah. reference to climate. Because if reference to climate worked, we'd have resolved the issue by now. Mm-hmm. Like it would be done, gone. We'd have. We we've known what the solutions are. Like you guys have known what the solutions are since before I was born. It's I I see that book. So we'll we'll link to the book. Uh, what's it called? Buildings: The Key to Energy Conservation. That was published at, by Reba in 1979. Like that's the year I was born, mate. Like we knew we knew back then, long time. With a sweet FA being done in the meantime. Again, this is this is why I believe more and more in what Robin said about the you've got to get the three types of people and you've got to build the alternative for yourself. Like it's energy prices, they're the motivator now. Because no one cares about climate until it's too late. Unless unless you can see green shoots of purpose elsewhere, Jeff. Well, I mean, I think there are some green shoots. I think the issue is that the system is dysfunctional. 
in a really big way. And to make it outcome-driven, it needs massive changes in culture, contracts, education, you name it. So I think Adrian's right. I mean, I've come to a similar conclusion that the best way to do this is local and viral and networked. But it does help to have a public domain platform on which things can be reported and compared. Now, interestingly, I was the other day at the pre-launch meeting of the National Retrofit Hub in the UK. Well, I don't generally have not liked hubs in the past because they tend not to have axles and tend to disappear all over the place. Um, but this does seem to be quite a strong movement. And interestingly, it's it's not wanted to be top down. You know, it's wanted to be very much a facilitator and a connector and a learner and that sort of thing. But there is so much work to be done, as Adrian was saying earlier, you know, in getting academe closer to practice. So, you know, people could be reflecting on things while they're happening rather than 20 years later and getting it wrong. Yeah. So who is this hub, Bill? It's called the National Retrofit Hub, and it's going to be launched in April. But there was a sort of soft launch with various stakeholders a couple of days ago, which I went to. So it's being led. It's partly the construction leadership councils involved. The government, um, UK Research and Innovation, is putting some money into it. But essentially, the, the government doesn't like to build institutions and things. You know, we tried to do an institute of building performance about 10 or 15 years yeah. ago. They just said, go away, you know. So they're always expecting the market the market to provide and are always seeing the market through the vision of the corporates yeah in my view the corporates are the problem you know and the corporates can be very useful at providing goods and services but that needs to be drawn from the bottom up rather than imposed from the top down. I, I think it can be both. I mean, you know, when I look at the change that we've seen, not to say that there, these buildings haven't got lots of problems and it couldn't have been done a lot better. But, you know, in Ireland, in the context of new homes now, um, since 2019, uh, we've had, uh, I mean, really this started in 2007, but, we had this kind of progressive improvement of building regulations and 70% notional energy reductions. They're calculated, admittedly, um, with a bunch of flaws in the in the calculation tool, which are going to be hopefully re remedied to some extent now, um, compared to the notional reference house that you talked about, same approach as the UK. Um, um, so 70% energy reduction, 70% carbon reductions, mandatory air tightness testing, mandatory uh, renewables. Um, and uh, you, uh, what, what I've seen as somebody who publishes a magazine in this space, there's, like, there's night and day the comparison between what the, the, the normal stuff you construction is producing now compared to where it was 15 years ago. The average air tightness test result of a new home in Ireland at the moment is about, I think, 2.6, between 2.6 and 2.7 cubic meters per square per hour. When that energy performance survey of Irish housing uh, I referenced was published, the average in that study, 11 and a half, you know? Yeah, but it wasn't the corporates begging to do better. Please, 
regulators to make our buildings yeah, we, 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 we had the green the greens got into government um and and wreaked havoc when when the construction yeah. industry was too busy too busy fighting its own uh, bankruptcy or insolvency to kind of object you know um, like corporates so, will acquiesce when it is wise to do so yeah in other words i think top down uh it, it can be both you know you can have both happening at the same time really i think um and um uh what 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 i like about this kind of top-down approach having had some success uh, with it in the past is that you have the ability to get like because the the industry as you said stopped complaining and and learned new skills um and uh and and it's probably it's gone some way to repairing the image of a of a you know of a very damaged industry you know because because of the the, the rubbish that had gone on for so many years, you know. Yeah, um, I mean, when you're referring to the Green Party, though, you've got to bear in mind that uh, in, I mean, this is slightly histrionic terms, they're an insurgent party. Yeah. Like, against Fine Gael and Fianna Foyle, who've shared power since since independence, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Like, the, the Green Party, that is an aberration. That is not the system working. That is that is the status quo. That is dysfunction to the status quo. It's it's the PR system, and they're in again now. You know, uh, second time, so it can happen. It's not really. It's not quite an aberration. Well, no, no, things have changed like yeah. over time, but the the rate of progress is, I mean, as slow as one might anticipate. Yeah. I mean, Adrian and I are a bit cynical because, you know, we've been there, done that. And, you know, we we have successions of false dawns every five or ten years. And, <laughs> and, and it really ought to. And I mean, one, one of the good things, as Adrian said at the beginning of this talk, is Passive House. You yeah. know, that has demonstrated you can do a lot better than, you know, policymakers were told by house builders that that was impossible. And the Passive yeah. House sellers yeah. went, no, it isn't. <laughs> we can do it. And you're right, and that's that's the bottom up approach kind of working. Because what I like to sorry for cutting you off, but what I what I like to, to talk about that is my synopsis, I suppose, of, of of why that why that approach is so interesting is that I've been privy to the building regulations process uh, several times, as you will, of course, many, many more times, um, and it's a political process. It's not just building physics process or anything like that. You know, um, it's yeah. it's stakeholder consultation and so on. The Passive House Institute or or the or Wolfgang Feist before there was an institute and Bo Adamson, they didn't have to worry about that stuff. They were just an engineer and a physicist thinking about solving a problem, an energy problem, you know. Um, and they were unencumbered by all the, the rubbish that you otherwise have to deal with. And therefore there's a kind of a ability to just test yeah. it, see if it works, and then and then gradually hopefully it'll snowball, you know. Well, I, I think that uh, the passive house to me is one of the most optimistic and and happy aspects of our work at the moment, but not where we're talking well-heeled middle-class people chucking money at glamorous buildings, but the kind of you know the round tree approach, which would be social housing with very good, extremely basic, but performing in a way that really supports people's lives uh, in a completely positive way. And I see that in data that we get from some of these studies. I haven't done a huge number myself recently, but to me, that's where the optimism comes from. It's it's improving people's lives. And if you don't, if we don't constantly ask the question, you know, what 
problem is this an answer to, which is the, the crucial means ends question. You must be asking that question yeah. all the time. Yeah. And the what this is about is human potential and 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 improving people's lives um gr- gradually in a way which is uh, beneficial at all levels of society it's as simple as that and um i don't know why is that not why is that why is that so difficult it shouldn't be and you know you, uh, when is uncanny i was i was frantically looking for the link when you were talking there adrian because the goldsmith street project which won the sterling prize a couple of years ago um which we wrote, wrote about um at the very moment uh, that Adrian mentioned the phrase improving people's lives, the link popped up on the screen here uh, for uh, the headlines, life-changing, the social housing help, uh, helping to cut heat build in Norwich. And these kinds of, you know, the scheme's been in, in Goldsmith Street, been up and running for a few years now. So we now have, you know, we had a story coming out in the midst of this awful winter that we've been through with this energy crisis, where you have interviews with occupants of social housing talking about how their lives have been transformed by by, by something as simple as, as a, a quality house um that uh that that where they don't have to worry about about uh about uh heating or eating essentially that, that that kind of you're absolutely right well we know why that potential is rarely met because no one cares about poor people like actively people tend to despise poor people in this country in the uk i mean i can't speak for ireland but uh there's an element of that of course there is yeah yeah, yeah. like poor, poor people care the value of money depends on who's spending it and you know if you're poor a tenor is worth a hell of a sight more than it is to somebody who's well healed it's as rel- it is relative and uh and i i take great um uh, happiness from seeing these projects because the Norwich project, and I, I'd love to have more examples actually of of the real the ones that have um, have been around for ten, five, ten years and are really succeeding. Because yeah. that good news definitely needs to be um, in the architecture schools and in the in the in the discourse of of these hub. I hate the word hub. Um, yeah, that's fine. There was a Ron Cook hub at the University of York, and I thought, "Oh my God, <laughs> no, thank you." And uh, but that was one, that was an early one, and ever since then, I've really uh, reacted to the uh, the, the jargon, um, you know, sandboxes and all that sort of stuff. But it's you know, it's it's not difficult. It well, really I- isn't. Well, no, it's not, and it's not. It's not more expensive either. We've had two. I know episodes. the premium disappeared now, hasn't it? Though I mean, it could disappear even more if we had slicker supply chain. Hundred percent. Like yeah. we've spoken with uh, that report that that uh, the artist formerly known as Bayes released about how low carbon housing is not high cost housing. We've had Energy Sprung on the other week, who were actively building supply chains to retrofit homes to make them more energy efficient. And we had Jeff, uh, Jeff got Shane Coakley on Dr. Shane Coakley last week to stay state incredibly assertively. It doesn't cost more. Yeah. We all know it just, it, the only bit that costs is learning how to do it adequately. Like we had, uh, uh, Alan Smith of, uh, Morrison construction ages ago and I was, he, he told us they had two 
near identical projects uh, to bring, to build. I think it was community centers or centers for kids. And one was passive house, one was standard construction. And they found that the, actually the passive house one did cost a bit more money. And it seemed to have escaped them that this was the first one they'd done. <laughs> so, like, well, yeah, you got to be learning on the job. Like, come talk to me about this when it's your 10th. It was interesting, though, when I spoke to Axel Brexit in Frankfurt, who brought about their first passive house school, um, Reedberg School. And by the time I saw him, he, they'd done about another five. He said the first one was the best because we we put more care and thought into it, whereas the subsequent ones were, we'll have one of those. And we found the same when I did a study of mixed-mode buildings for BRE in the mid-'90s, that, you know, the, the, the pioneers um, paid more attention to everything than the settlers sometimes did. So I don't know whether that's been happening on Passive House. I don't think quite the same extent because Passive, um, you know, here, because partly um, I think it, it, I think in Germany probably the view was that, well, you know, we know how to do it. We should just get on with it. Whereas I, I, I think here and probably in Ireland, people realised it was a bit more of a stretch. So maybe I the intention to this There's still a pretty anal kind of... Um, you know, evidence uh, requirement, which is really important. I, I, I can tell you that I notice that, that there's a massive difference when it comes to picking buildings to write about. If I'm, if I'm, if it's a passive house project and, I'm, and I look for construction photos, for instance, uh, and it's a certified passive house, I'll get usually uh, or very often an enormous uh, Dropbox folder uh, with loads of photographs with a measuring tape showing insulation, you know, um, in a wall, for instance. And, and showing fiddly details, you know, um, uh, thermal bridging and air tightness details and so on, and and loads of photographs just to show evidence that the products that were claimed to use were used, you know. Um, it's not the same. Uh, it's getting better with 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 with, with uh, non-passive projects, but it's not th that that same forensic uh, requirement isn't there yet, you know. So again, um, it is possible to do better. People just have to do better, yeah. and they have to report on it. Again, the transparency issue. You've got to be prepared. As Alex and I often say, uh, like getting things wrong is part of the process. Like leaving things Adrian wrong. Adrian put that Edison quote up. I didn't get something wrong 10,000 times. I learned how not to do it 10,000 times. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it, yeah. Leaving yeah. things wrong is not part of the process. Yeah. Like you improve. Uh, I think the, fu the fundamental problem is you cannot monetize happiness. And if you could, then that you know the ends become the object of what you're trying to do. It's the, the the obsessive creation of wealth as a means to an end that is the problem. Yeah, but I don't want to get too philosophical about no, it. No, I could, it, I could not agree more. Yeah, um, I am going to have to to abscond. Uh, unfortunately, as much as I'm enjoying this, um, I could go on for hours more. But um, but I've got. And fires to put out, you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, fair play. Well, I think I think uh, in summary, that's that's been really good. Like, I think the first half we were looking backwards, and in the second half we've been looking forwards. And I think I might edit this into two episodes for next week and keep the lot of it, including the the story about the uh, the 
the Albanians who appeared on your doorstep? Because I think uh, it's it's really interesting. I mean, it's interesting that you had to go to Albania to speak about energy efficiency. I would like to well, touch we, upon. We, we, uh, I wrote a book with Ian Borden, who's um, a professor at UCL, an expert on skateboarding. And that was, uh, I, I took that book on a lecture tour of behind the Iron Curtain into six, six Eastern European countries. And it was there I learned two things, that the, the UNDP and the United Nations were the worst payers of uh, invoices that I have ever discovered. <laughs> and that the project had nothing whatsoever to do with energy efficiency. It was to do with dollars and getting dollars into the hands of people behind the Iron Curtain. You know, it was entirely money. They were not in the slightest bit interested in any of the what we were saying about energy. But um, I, I, what I do have is a store of stories of things that happened to me on that trip, which I'm not going to bore you with now, but I might drop one or two of them in occasionally because it was completely bizarre. I mean, an out-of-body experience. Um, I, think, that was... I think that should be its own episode, Adrian. I think we'll oh. definitely have you back on. Like we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna be evolving this into a, a, a Patreon proposition. We're doing some work with uh, Lloyd Alter, oh. and he's yeah. yeah he's got some ideas for for content. And I think this sort of stuff, it's I mean, it's perfect for. Uh, bonus episodes and paywalling because we don't get any money for doing this. And I think we're providing a, a valuable resource to a lot of people uh, for free. And if we want to do better, we're going to need to find some money from somewhere. So let's take it to a market-based solution. Eh? Ask people for money and we promise more and that we'll do better. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, uh, fellas. It's been a pleasure as ever. I think we'll... Uh, well, love you again. Um, if you're up for it, uh, we'd be delighted to have you back. And uh, yeah, have you got anything to plug? <laughs> any any public appearances, lectures, tours, books? Um, Go sell, well, sell some stuff, Adrian. Yeah. Yeah. So Adrian's new truck yeah, well, line will be launching uh, <laughs> 2024. <laughs> no, I, I, I've been working on soft retrofit. Okay. Working out from the people rather than in from the building. So you sort of end up you end up with reversible things you can do to the building rather than permanent ones. It's particularly for the heritage sector, and it's particularly for um, you know having a rather better quality of life rather quickly, because some of this more extensive stuff at the very best will take a long time. Oh well. So I'll send you some slides on that. Yeah, please do. I think that's I started off. When I started off, but essentially I've given it to historic buildings people. I've given it to thermal comfort people. Um, I've given it to architects and I've given it to engineers. And it's gone down very well, actually. Surprisingly, I thought I'd be lynched by the engineers, but I wasn't. <laughs> my, my current work is on uh, national parks. Um, I live in North Yorkshire. Uh, the North Yorkshire Moors Association is a user group supporting the work of the National Park. Okay. And we've suddenly, you know, run into not the, the whole climate nature recovery thing, but also the rapacious effects of a 
the long-term stripping out of public uh, assets, especially bus routes, rail routes, and so mm. on, and the chaos that uh, affects poorer people and their access to nature and the countryside. And doing that has been a revelation to me, especially as in the last week, as I was telling Jeff earlier, I was suddenly asked to write an article on Passive House for the Friends of the Dales magazine. Now, that would never have happened a few years ago. You know, when, and these things are now of interest to, to people everywhere. And I think that getting out of the professional ghetto actually is quite a, an, an important part of, of the work. And not enough people know that, you know, there are answers out there which do make people happier and don't cost a fortune. Well, that's, and the passive house now seems to be one of them. Well, yeah, if you can focus on solutions that people that will actually improve people's lives, then they might actually want to hear about them. <laughs> you know? Imagine that. <laughs> yeah. Well, quality of life is an outcome in and of itself. Like Alex and I, we've been doing a lot of work with uh, peripheral neuropathic pain and uh, treatments, non-systemic treatments for that. And a big issue, which is analogous to the energy, you can't get rid of all the pain if it's chronic. In the same way, you've still got to have some energy use, but you can improve people's lives along the way. And you can make things better and you can learn and you can learn how to do better. Sorry, I've got that. That might not be relevant. I've just got it buzzing around my head from getting deep into it this morning. Right. So um, send us some links if you would like us to put them in the show notes. Everyone check usablebuildings.co.uk. As ever, like, share, subscribe. I mean, man, you must, if you're listening to this, you must know other people who'd be interested in it. And the toxic positivity, as Jeff puts it, please, five stars. Please, Jesus, someone review us, for God's sake. Um, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for joining us, lads. And uh, we'll have you back very soon. Cheers. Bye-bye. Have a good weekend. Bye-bye.